Okay, uh, introduction. So, the uh, chapter 9, we started uh, last week with kind of super idols, super idols being, super idols being these idols that are all consuming. They're so close to us, we can't even see them. And uh, Scalia then moves on and talks about super idols and language, which at first might seem to be a little bit kind of impractical, but hopefully as you read the chapter, it became thoroughly practical because it's so prevalent in today's society. And um, so as we introduce the, the chapter, words can mean. So the first section of the chapter is about words and what words mean. And she has the quote from the Alice in Wonderland Two questions. Can you make words mean so many different things? And then Humpty Dumpty asks, you know, basically a question about who decides the meaning of words. All right. So what we find out, though, is that the answer to this, these two questions, uh, is kind of resides in paradox. So the Bible is full of paradoxes. You save by losing, you lose by saving, you, you be, being a servant, becoming Lord or Master, um, having nothing, having everything. So it's all over the Bible. Dying to live, that's another one. And um, so, you know, words may appear slippery because they mean different things to different people. And that's something that we have to acknowledge as being real, okay? Because in Scalia's examples, she gives it kind of a negative example. Uh, Back when she was a child in junior high, she used to write, you know, peace and love on her book covers, even though she had no idea what those meant. Those were just popular words back in those days. And... They kind of that lack of meaning or context kind of manifests itself in a more drastic form, you know, like in modern society. And then she gave a funny example about sacrifice, dealing with her uh, uh, children's teacher about getting rid of the uh, um, science fair blue ribbons. And then his, I think it was a man, he was hoping to get rid of the honor roll. But it was all under this kind of uh, auspices of sacrifice. Like they're teaching the children an important lesson in value. But of course, they, he redefined the word <laughs> sacrifice. All right, so, this, uh, so words mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And as we dialogue with today's society, we have to acknowledge that. And then we have to kind of work through that. So, um, in, in, uh, so page 119, Scalia writes, We are in a place of deep cynicism, but that is rarely acknowledged because so many of us residing within this disordered idol's shadow confuse cynicism with cleverness. Similarly, we confuse love with hate, silence with peace, narrowness with breath, and we do this mostly because everything is relative in this place. So are words relative? Question mark. 
I would probably say yes. Well, uh, it, uh, yeah, so uh, I would say yes, and then, we, then we'll get to the fundamental question, which goes to Nancy's point. They're not supposed to be. All right, so then let's ask ourselves, can saving mean losing? Can losing mean saving? All right. A lot of people acknowledge that, yes, okay. Um, however, so if I save money, does that mean I'm losing money? Well, no, right? Okay, so now we have context to that decides, because, of course, when Jesus talks about saving and losing, what is he mainly talking about? Your life, your soul... If you try to hang on to the world's understanding of who you are, then you really lose who you are. But if you give that up, you lose it, then you'll be saving your soul according to God's word. Mary. You lost a brother, yep. Okay. Yep. Well, Mary brings up a very controversial is- issue, um, without even knowing it, maybe. Yeah. Is uh, so, like for instance, can you promote life by taking a life? That's kind of a. That's kind of. We're not going to get into that right now, but. That is that is uh, that deals with kind of how we talk about language. Um, but anyways, yeah. So saving and losing, losing and saving, it does depend on who says what. So there's the question now, the fundamental question: Who has the authority to tell you anything? All right. Now the world would say, what to that question? Who has the authority to tell you anything? Uh, okay. So those who are in charge. So kind of power, law. Okay, I think you're being pretty pretty gracious here. I, I, I would be more... Nobody, right? That's right. And... and well, who has the... Yeah, so this goes with... Uh, then, uh, who has the authority to make you do things? Okay, that's right. Un- Okay, so well, Mary, you got to slow down. You're getting ahead of the game here. So uh, we would say the law has the authority or authority to make you do something. However, Scalia brings it up in the chapter. You know, I can um, I can be forced to do something, but are they really making me do it? Am I really doing it? No, we would say no because uh, I I don't put the responsibility on me, I put the responsibility on whoever's making me do it. All right. So, um, Scalia brings up subjectivity, and I would say then that that's probably most true. The idol of the individual, the autonomous person, rules the world today. Autonomy is huge in our Western society. 
So this subjectivity is unbound by the strictures of any commandments beyond our own and bent to shape our own personal truths, which are not subject to anyone else's moralizing judgment. Yeah, well, yeah, okay, yeah, you, you pick something that's, pre- that's pretty specific, Barbara. I, I'm, uh, I would think, let's think, <laughs> my goal is to try to be more like everyday experiences, but, but you're right, absolutely, Barbara. So, like, you have a, a soldier who's put in a kind of, um, whether it be, well, yeah, you have a chain of, chain of command, where does the authority or the responsibility lie? Now, but for the person, so oftentimes we'll say, you know, whoever gave the orders, responsibility. But for the person who's pulling the trigger, though, how how do they feel about that? You know, they they would have to completely disengage their heart and mind and become a machine, basically. So for them, that question is a real question. You know, do do I have the authority to say no to this? And, and so that's a whole big kind of moral argument, ethical argument. Um, I'm thinking more, more kind of on a more everyday level when you have, in my opinion, or, well, I think. And then, and my father-in-law has, has a, 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 I think, he, I don't know if he quotes it to Yogi Berra, but I'll, I'll say it in a second. But yes, what, did, what were you going to say, Faye? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. So now you have consequences to your decisions. This is true. But what I'm thinking about is, and we'll get to the Jimmy Kimmel here. This is this is a very silly example of what we're all talking. Scalia's chapter is very serious, but I have a very silly example of it. Um, everyone's entitled to their own opinion, but not everyone's entitled to what? Their own facts okay so we're getting to the point now where we have confused what most people would call truth with opinion all right so when you have when the individual is the authority on truth then whatever the individual says can can be allowed it can be it can be allowed in the Arena of ideas. Well, that's that's true to a certain extent, especially in America. But that's not really true, though, when it comes down to truth. So, um, John Kerry, for all the things he probably have, has done wrong, he said something pretty true. I believe it was two when he first became um, Secretary of State. He was in China, and they were asking him about kind of freedom of speech. And he, does anyone know what he said to these Chinese students? In America, we defend the right to be, yeah, or, or stupid, he said, yeah. And so in our society, yeah, we allow opinions, but the problem is, is when opinions become facts or true, Okay. And so that is that is something we have to really recognize as Christians and also as Americans. Who really has the authority to say anything? Okay.
Job 40. Turn to Job 40. This is a, probably, I, I feel like this is the most extreme example of the dialogue between who really has the authority and who sometimes claims to have authority. Actually, I'm sorry. Turn to Job 38 first. Yes. Yep. To God. Yep. Yep, right, right. Okay. That that is a true statement. Jesus says he is uh, he is questioned. Depending on it, it's Mark chapter twelve or eleven, and then there's him. It's in Matthew also. Did you want me to say any more about that, or you just wanted to know if that was in the Bible? Okay. Yes. Okay. Now, um, but we so a lot of the Sunday school answers, of course, is Jesus is in charge, God's in charge, but that's not going to work in the world and in the chapel. We'll get to that. What we read in First John chapter four, but in chapel, uh, John tells the church, "Test the spirits," which, of course, is not necessarily like you know, you know. Uh, Demons and angels—it's—it's it, it, it's the spirit of the age. All that, all that going on. Test that, because there's the spirit of the world, and then there's the spirit of God. The spirit of the world does not what acknowledge God, and also doesn't listen. So there is going to always be there this kind of conflict or tension between the two, and we see this playing out today. Very concretely, but anyways, but before we get to that, I want to I want you guys to kind of play it out. So, Job, uh, you know, Job was a very blessed man. He was he was wealthy, had a big family, very faithful. And you know, Satan came to God and said, "The only reason why he's faithful is because you've given him all this stuff." And God said, "Okay, go go ahead and take it all away. Just you can't kill him." So that all happens, and there's this you know. His family dies, his wealth is taken away, he's got nothing, he's reduced to nothing. And, you know, he's got some friends that give him some advice that is pretty pretty awful. And, you know, and Job gets to the point now where he's, you know, he's finally kind of buckling under pressure to a certain extent. And he sort of, he sort of laments, maybe complains a little bit, you could say. But, um, and then, so then God has a word for Job. And then we'll hear Job's response in, in chapter 40. But then the Lord answered Job out of the world, went and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. It's my turn to question you, and you make it known to me. So, God's turned the tables. He's basically said to Job, You don't know what you're talking about. Time, time for like I'm going to ask you a few questions, and he asks these great questions like, "Hey, where were you when the world was created? You know, did you decide where the oceans should start and stop? You know, how how the mountains should be?" Uh, and of course, now it's it's two chapters uh, two chapters long, and now flip the page over to Job 40, 
And then, uh, so, uh, verse 3, Job answers the Lord and says, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. That's a great acknowledgement that Job has nothing to talk about. So this, who has the authority to say anything to you is actually God and God alone. Of course, God works through people and God puts people in authority over you. I mean, we all, small catechism, fourth commandment, the way of the world and how the world is structured. But Job has no authority really to say anything except for what God has said first. And that's important for us as we approach uh, dialogue with words like peace, love, and sacrifice. We're getting all to this point. So, we have to understand what words are and what words mean according to the Bible. And in the Old Testament, we have a word, debar. And debar um, is really important for us as we understand the New Testament. Actually, we just understand words in general. So, I've got a couple questions. Words can mean whatever we decide. Well, that, uh, that's only true if we have an abstract notion of words. And just to kind of help you think about it this way, if words live in the air, then perhaps we can make them mean so many things. Okay, what does that mean? If they just live out there and they have no concrete bearing or grounding. It's kind of, they're out there. Words just kind of are spoken. Another way to say it is words are simply sounds. All right, but the flip question would be, or, uh, or statement would be, words can't mean whatever we decide. And that would be the concrete notion of words. If words live in a body, more specifically a mouth, then we receive them accordingly. So a word comes out, and when we hear that word, we have to say, what does this person mean? What does Carol mean? And if I receive her word, then I have to understand my understanding of the word or her understanding of the word. I mean, this is just kind of plainly speaking. Hers. I mean, that's just the way it is. Oftentimes we say, well, what do you mean by that? Okay? But that's very important for us as we understand the world, and especially as you watch... CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, which of course we should be suspect when we watch, um, is, is that when we hear them speaking, we might project our own meaning on, on what they're saying and then realize that you know, it, makes, it makes our blood pressure rise because <laughs> it, it sounds confusing. So we kind of have these two options. Words are kind of sounds or words are actually attached to a person. Now, debar means word or talk, but it becomes a special word when it's connected to the divine word. And we see this in the Old Testament. The word of the Lord. If you were to type in a search engine, the word of the Lord, you would have hundreds of listings in the Old Testament. So the question is, does the word of the Lord reside in the air or in a person? And, of course, I think 
we probably can just guess. It resides in a person. All right. So uh, Genesis 15, 1 and 4, very peculiar. This is a very important part in Scripture because this is the part where Abraham is promised to be the father of many nations. Now the word of the Lord came in something. What is it? A vision or a dream. Well, so this is, this is where it's peculiar. And a vision in the Old Testament is not always when you're unconscious. It could be, but it's not always. Now, what makes this interesting, though, is read verse 4. I actually might start in verse 3. I don't have it open, so. Yep, keep reading. Keep reading then. Oh, all right. Oh, oh, and he brought him outside. Who's the he? The, the, word the word of the Lord. Yep. So we have a very peculiar image. Now, it actually, I. Uh, uh, well, it's Debar though. The word of the Lord it comes from the Lord's mouth. Yeah. Now that would be a whole different punctuation issue. But um, the uh, 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 while I'm stretching after running. I sometimes put on the Netflix, and I, I started the Bible series. Uh, well, about 15 minutes of it, I guess. Anybody, that mini-series from last year? I don't know what channel it was on. Have anybody seen it? Okay. I just got to this section. Does anybody remember how that worked? Okay. It's a person who comes and... and uh, Speaks, it's it's a person. It's not like a voice. Well, it's a concrete person. If I'm watching it, Abraham's kind of uh, praying. I think he's like under a tree, perhaps. And uh, and then someone comes up to him. But there's like wind. You know, it it, it, it you kind of know it's. You're not sure if it's like. You don't know what's going on. It's kind of an otherworldly, but it's it's right there. And a person comes and talks to him. Now, the person, the, whoever created this uh, series, did a very ingenious thing. Uh, you, do, you can't, you never see his face. But if you were to watch the whole thing, who is actually talking to him? He's a character. He, he, he reappears later in the movie or in the series. The reason why I know that is because I saw the movie previews of the Son of God. It's Jesus. It's the character Jesus. Whoever played Jesus in the movie is the one who's coming and speaking to Abraham. But you don't know that. I only knew that because I saw the trailer. I'm like, hey, that's the guy that plays Jesus. And you kind of you see him sort of halfway and you hear his voice. It's pretty ingenious. It's a person. It's the word of the Lord. And whoever created the video interpreted the word of the Lord in a Christian way which we'll get to in a second. Okay, so anyways, that, that's a very interesting thing, Genesis 15. Then you get it throughout uh, the other places. The word of the Lord came by a prophet. And it's not always documented how that prophet actually received that word. It's just that the word of the Lord came out of a mouth by a prophet. That's 2 Samuel 24. That, well, that's actually a, uh, yeah, that's good enough. That's good. Um, and then out of a person, Jeremiah, the calling of Jeremiah, then we have, 
not in a vision or a dream. We have someone coming up to Jeremiah. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, and he took, asked Jeremiah, what do you see? So you have a person. The whole point of this is not really to talk about... It, it, all, all he's saying is that word in Scripture is always coming out of a specific mouth. Okay? That means words, according to the Bible, aren't abstract. They just, they're not sounds. Yeah. Right. So the word begins in God's mouth, in a sense. And so that's very important for us as we, as we kind of think about meanings of words. We see this most you know, specifically in the word of the Lord that became flesh. Jesus is the word, you know, the word, word that became flesh. He tabernacled among, among us. So words that carry authority, as Nancy just said, come from a specific mouth, and that's the mouth of the Lord, the mouth of Jesus. So when the words come out of Jesus' mouth, they're freighted with something. They have something with it. They're never just like, well, whatever you decide. And we see that most especially when, like in the sacramental acts. I baptize you. Something happens. I forgive you. Something happens. This is my body. Something happens. I pronounce you husband and wife. Something happens. I ordain you in the office of the ministry. Those are just a few now, of course, these are the words that are given to the world through Jesus and his, his promises. But, of course, when Jesus is walking around um, the earth, he says, I, you know, I heal you, and he's, you know, people are healed. As I always, I always tell the children, if Jesus were to walk in this room and say chocolate milkshake, you would have a chocolate milkshake. Because his words are never just up in the air. They're never abstract. They're always, they're, you, or there's always, they're always tangible. And we see that, though, with respect to when he says, I heal you, the person's healed. Now, the, par, per, the, the tough part, though, and this is where we're getting at, is when he says, I love you. What's the concrete? What, what you know? Okay, so throughout Scripture, words are always concrete. They're, they're always attached to a person, a person I can hug. And when they are spoken, of course spoken as we, we kind of laid out with the authority of God, then something happens, something I can actually touch and see. And, okay, now that doesn't mean they're always, um, I'm always presuming now the, uh, what I call like faith goggles. We always see this in faith. Okay? So. All right. So I'm talking to you as Christians. All right. See, if these words lived in the air, then we wouldn't know exactly what they mean. And just ask a Hindu person who shows up and sees the Lord's Supper. What's going on? Uh, I don't know. It looks like uh, people are having a little cracker snack and a sip of wine. All right, but as Christians, we say these aren't these aren't just words I made up. These are words given to us by 
by God himself, by Jesus. See, so if they live, so however, since they live in the mouth of Jesus, we have great confidence in what they mean and what they do. Okay? That was a long road to simply saying, when God speaks, something happens. Okay? Um, And that is very different than just our words. And if you're a fan of the early 90s, I bring this up often, more than words, extreme, easily you know that song, right? Of course. I know Holly does. Rachel, you know that song, More Than Words by Extreme? More than words. Okay. Um, You have to look it up, everybody else. It's a nice song. Um, Okay. That song is just about uh, when a a lover says, I love you, but doesn't show love, then those words mean nothing. And the person saying, I need more than just words. Okay. Uh, But Scalia touches on this. If we have nothing to say, then I guess those words are probably preferable to anything else we might utter. And in truth, peace and love, either conceptualized or spoken, if applied at critical moments, can do the work of God and the angels. Meaning, just by happen chance, you know. And we see that, I mean, I see that a lot. I mean, you see examples of love in the world that we as Christians say, hey, that's like the love of Jesus. But the world might not actually give credit where credit's due. So, that's all she's, she meaning by, she's meaning by that. Overused, misapplied, or simply... Uh, uh, banded about, they become meaningless as, as they become as meaningless as scrap paper. And when we render words meaningless, especially powerful world, words like peace and love, our understanding of them becomes warped. Then as when a teenager flings his stuff thoughtlessly and lazily about the house, disorder follows. All right, so turn to John chapter, I'm sorry, 1 John chapter 4. Because as, as I said before, when Jesus says, I heal you, we see this person, uh, you know, rise, take up your bed and walk. We see this person rise, take up his bed and walk. All these words have very concrete manifestations. But when God says, I love you, just as when people say, I love you, we have to have, we, sh- we don't have to, we get to have a, a actual concrete manifestation of what that love is. So, 1 John chapter 4. We're not gonna, it's the whole chapter, so I'm not going to read the whole chapter. So you can just go ahead and start you know, skimming it as, as we talk about it. But, but uh, of course, then, the, the, big, the big verse is in... Um, well, there's verse 8. God is love. Alright, so God is love. But anyways, okay. before we get to that. John says uh, that the people need to test their spirit. So there's a spirit, there's a role of the spirit and the role of the word of God. Those with the spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, I should have wrote, Listen to the word of God. 
Now, when you listen to the Word of God, it takes on a specific form in verses 20 and 21. If we skip down there, it says, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. So, John's talking about concrete and abstract. You say, I love God. Can't be uh, just words in the air. It has to, there, there has to be a concrete connection. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So that's a mandate. We have a commandment from God. Okay, so then we have to test the spirits, and when the world says, I love you, they might not get it right. When we say, I love you, when Christians say, I love you, they define that love according to Jesus. John has a very specific definition in mind here. So skip down to verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Of course, he's talking about a love from God. Okay? Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And this... And uh, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. So, well, what, what, what's so you say, Pastor? Where do I where do I look for the love of God? Where's the concrete picture of the love of God? Well, John tells us, made manifest among us. So, what's the word manifest mean? Shown, billboard, postered. All right. Um, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. There's a lot going on in these verses, okay? So let's just slow down and take it. Take so, uh, so the love of God is made manifest in what? First, it's in Jesus Christ, the incarnation, God coming to, the, to earth. So, of course, John wrote 1 John, and John wrote the Gospel of John. So it, in order to understand these verses, it's probably best to go to the Gospel of John. And we see this most especially in John chapter 1. When the Word of God tabernacled among us. Now, it's not just a life being lived, though, but it has a very specific purpose, and that's we see that in the next verse, to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, that's, that's technical language. What does that mean? Does anybody know what that means? What's that? Uh, atonement. And, of course... If we are going to, so where do I find the atonement in the Bible, Nancy? Because, well, I mean, more specifically in this context. That's right. That's right. So, so if you're looking for the love of God, the one place you look is on the cross. Cross and the grave, the whole Easter weekend, basically. So... If we want to know what the love of God is, then we look towards Jesus and his work on the cross and the grave. That is, that is what defines what love is. 
Okay. So anything that runs up contrary to that in terms of love, then we say, well, wait, that's not quite right. Okay. So, but that love, then, uh, then that work, that means the work of the cross, the work of love, becomes the area or the room in which we live. Did you see how John said that? Um, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest. Um, wait a second, I, I skipped down too far. Oh my gosh, here, there you go, here. I'm going to have to start over. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might, there it is, we might live through him. Okay, so that's the area where we live. This area of the propitiation of our sins. Now this love becomes perfected in us. What does that mean? Isn't God's love perfect already? Yeah, you, it's in the sense of like fulfillment. Meaning, the world that doesn't see God can see God or know God in the love that's perfected in us. In that love that actually lives and is fulfilled in us. In the church. Donna. It's a lot. Mm-hmm. Well, you can if you want. But the Bible doesn't. Right. No. Um, what, uh, what you want to, yeah, uh, so we have, we have these doctrines, justification and sanctification, which a lot of people will say faith and love. Justific- faith belongs to justification, love belongs to sanctification. Um, on a certain level, that's true. However, they belong on the same coin. Okay, so think about it in terms of, yeah, one penny, right? You have a heads and tails, if you were only to talk about the heads side, then would you have a real penny? No, in fact, I would challenge you to rub off the tail side of a penny or a quarter. Let's, let's raise the stakes a little bit. Quarter. Rub that tail off so it's just smooth, you know, smooth, and try to pay for it. What will happen? Will it be accepted? No, because it's not a quarter. All right, this is with the Lutheran doctrine of, or, or the Lutheran dogma of faith and love, is that if you get rid of one, the other one really is meaningless. So unfortunately, though, throughout Lutheranism, the accentuation of faith has really been, hey, we want to make sure that we set ourselves apart from kind of Roman Catholics. However, by... You basically, there's a practical separation, though, even though doctrinally there, there isn't, scripturally there isn't, but practically speaking, we've separated them so far apart where people now say, hey, I'm saved by grace, you know, it doesn't matter what I do. Now, they might not say that, but practically speaking, that's what they do. 
In John chapter, a woman that was forgiven. Oh, yeah, right. Yep. Well, hang on. Slow down, though, because what... Okay, so this goes... No, this is good. You're, you're, this is a good story. So this is in uh, Luke chapter 7, maybe? No. Jesus goes over to the Pharisee's house, Simon, I believe. And I think it's... I think maybe it's 7. Yeah, it doesn't matter. I can't remember. Um, he goes over, goes into the house to Simon, and a woman comes in. It's Luke seven, okay. And um, and these people, are, Simon asks the question, kind of like you know, hey, what's going on here? And Jesus, yeah, I mean, says, you know, this woman uh, loves much, and so is forgiven much. And the thing is, though, this woman's faith, though, if we were to separate faith and love, what would that scene look like? That's exactly right. That means she wouldn't even be in the room. She wouldn't even be present. So, and she definitely wouldn't be doing what she, what she was doing. She was uh, kissing Jesus' feet or something, right? So, if you were to separate faith and love in that instance, you would have... First of all, you wouldn't have a woman in the room, uh, but let's say she was in the room. Let's give that the benefit of the doubt. She definitely wouldn't be kissing Jesus' feet. And that would be kind of a lame story. I mean, that'd be, that'd be a, like a silly story to tell, right? Yeah. Um, now, the thing is, though, is just because you say you have faith, what? Doesn't mean you actually have and this is the great thing. I, this is, I didn't think about this uh, in this chapter, but you're bringing it up. This is great. Who tells me I have faith? That's right. Whose word do I listen to? Jesus' word. This is very important for us because I grew up in a tradition where I said, I know I have faith because I, 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 I made a commitment. I prayed, I prayed a prayer. And that's a very subtle twisting of language to the detriment of our piety. Uh, yeah, that's, Donna, that's a good job. So you, uh, so you can actually see this throughout the scripture quite a bit. In John chapter 4, he, uh, it's so packedly, wo- it's woven so pa- you know, together so closely that, so you can unpack that in a variety of stories throughout the Gospels. Holly. Yeah, it's society. Faith without works is dead, as James says. But works, uh, let's just let's put a, a descriptor on that. Works of love. I mean, that, that's the whole point. So, faith always manifests itself in love. I mean, that, well, that's, that's basically what John just said right here. He doesn't use the word faith, though. And that's important. Actually, uh, I don't think faith is ever used in the Gospel of John. So, but uh, knowing is used a lot, as Donna has said. Um, but in the Gospel of John, it's not just this knowing; it's a, it's the the whole living knowing. It's, again, so we have to acknowledge words in their context. All right, Donna, what were we gonna say? Yeah, right. 
No, 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 it's not. Because, yeah, that's right. Because Jesus, Jesus died and, and, and Jesus, Jesus did everything. We didn't do it. We're not saved by the works of the law. Like, I don't merit God's favor because of what I do. But I've been set free from the law in order to do what? To do the works, I mean, to do the works of love. If I was Jewish, I would say the works of the law. But in freedom. Well, it's the Holy Spirit active in us. And where does, where does, the, where does love come from? Yeah, from the Spirit, right. So God gives us love. Remember, love is from God, though. And that love lives through us in that area of the work of Jesus Christ. So, um, okay, so, th- th- I mean, that becomes a much different... Okay, oh, so th- anyway, so this love becomes perfected in us so that we are confident on the day of judgment. That's a little bit lower in the, in the verses there. In verse um, uh, 17. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also we are in the world, in this world. There is no fear in love, but love, perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Um, this is a great thing because underlying a lot of what Scalia talks about is fear. And I have a silly example with Jimmy Kimmel about this. <laughs> Anyways, um, but part of that, though, part of love, though, is, is this understanding of de, uh, delineation or, or making what we would say judgments. We... we Love is saying yes to this and no to that. Okay? And when that happens, if we are actually in love, when we say no to something, we, have, we don't have any fear about that because we are walking in love. And Scalia then brings up the whole point is that when you start uh, igno- like basically questioning the way the world talks about love, peace, sacrifice, how does the world respond? You are a an IST, an S, right? You're a Marxist, you're a racist, you know. You know, all this other different things. Yeah. Yeah. Complete. Yeah, right. That's right. Yep. That's right. Okay, so Nancy, good job. I, I didn't want to get too far into that. So I don't know if Scalia meant to do that, the connection between peace and love, because she didn't really say this. She brought up 1 John 4. That's why I wanted to talk about it today. But um, there, is a, there is a very organic connection between love being fulfilled and the, the idea of peace. So shalom, does anybody know what shalom means? means peace, right? Okay, good. But it also means, I mean, so but peace is, is uh, uh, it takes on a really unique character in the Old Testament. It's being whole. And, uh, and uh, so the Sabbath rest, because everything is, everything is what? Complete on uh, the sixth day, so God rests on the seventh. It's, it's whole, it's complete, 
and so you have shalom. You have peace. You have rest. Um, but yeah, okay. So Nancy, good job. It, so, uh, well, you can think about that all week too. All right. So that that how does that compare then with the world's understanding of love? Uh, love, love, love changes us. And through these ver- uh, words, does it affirm us or confront us? Real love. Well, okay, yeah. So uh, it depends on what you mean by affirm. How does it affirm us? Okay, good job. We- passive. That's good. We are receivers of love. Now, where does it confront us? Okay, what does that mean then? You're not perfect. That's right. Uh, we know Jesus' love because of the propitiation of sins. If we acknowledge that, what does that make us? Well, let's use the word. Sinners. And so it does confront us, but where the world says, oh my gosh, I'm a sinner, I am thus unlovable, Christ says, no, you're, you're exactly lovable. Not because you're a sinner, but because, because I love you. And so that is very different, though, for a lot of the world because if you say you are against... Well, if you say that... Um, well, okay, so... Let, I mean, how, how can they get this played out in the politics right now? In the world? Public debate. Okay, against abortion. Civil rights, okay. Well, I, I'm thinking about the word love. Love is used a lot these days in a, in a specific an, uh, context, and if you question it, then you are against love. Yeah. What, are you against love? No. Well, you are if you say, I can't love this person. Of course, then we say, what? Well, yeah, you can love anybody. The question is, how do you love? What, what is the content of that love? All right? Okay, so then, like, I mean, so the idea of, of uh, you know, two, two men loving each other, or two women loving each other, like, a man and a woman love each other, that just, that's just not, that's just not true. Because it's different. <laughs> Can't be the same love. But there's a very famous song, though, called, well, you, well, called Same Love by Macklemore. You guys watched the Grammys this last year? It's all a story about, hey, it's just the same love. It's just that, you know, I, I, I might love a woman, but this guy over here might love a man. It's the same love, though. Well, of course, as Christians, we say, well, no, it, it's not really. Common sense, though, it can't be the same love because it's a different person. I mean, it's just, you know, I love my wife in a certain way. I love my children in a certain way. It's not the same. 
So anyways, but that, that's a whole other point. But that, that's where Scalia gets to in the book, right? Where I think I might have quoted this. Oh, I, I didn't do... Well, I, I quoted a different one, but she said the same thing. In the end... Uh, that's on one page 128. In the end, they find it easier to forget about scripture, tradition, and natural law. In another place where they, I think she uses the word common sense, they go along to get along. This is how people are reacting to when they're confronted with um, uh, kind of like, I know what I'm talking about. Um, and if I don't know what I'm talking about, I just, I just kind of go along without, without, rather than asking questions. They bring their thoughts into social alignment rather than lose associations or risk hearing that they are intolerant or have no compassion in a world that has made gods of these virtues. All right, I was supposed to show you the video before I read that, but I'm going to show you this video. Jimmy Kimmel Live. It's a, it's a, and it's a funny, it's a, co- a comedy. He, uh, well, I'll just, the video speaks for itself. This isn't about love, peace, or sacrifice. This is about gluten. <laughs> okay, that, that is a very silly example. But I think uh, it, it shows everything that Elizabeth Scalia talked about in the chapter. Um, for whatever reason, in Southern California, gluten is akin to Satanism, as Jimmy Kimmel said. But... Um, People have actually changed their lives in order to live this kind of gluten-free diet, but yet they have no idea what they're talking about. They don't understand what the word means, and subsequently they really don't understand what the life means. And so um, I think that's, that's a great example, but I think that can be played out on many different levels. Whether it, be, whether it be love, peace, sacrifice, as those examples in Scalia's book, but um, you know, it could be in terms of even like tolerance, freedom. Um, people just kind of make it up. Now, those are extreme examples of you know, kind of I would say ignorance. They just don't know. But um, but what's amazing is uh, you know, ignorance does not stop people from living a certain way. And speaking authoritatively on it too, until questioned. So what we find, I find out in this video, and to a certain extent, I think this applies to a lot of people: is if you question, you scratch the surface on where a lot of people live. They actually have no idea why they're doing what they're doing. They're just doing it because that's what everyone else is doing. And as Christians, we don't live that way. So that that gives us a great opportunity to dialogue with people about what love means um, and also influence people. Now, the one thing that's missing, of course, in this video, it would be the positive example of knowing what gluten is and gluten isn't and then living appropriately. Of course, you know, Jimmy Kimmel was was kind of joking. I'm pro-gluten because, you know, I like to eat pizza and probably other very unhealthy things. That wouldn't necessarily validate his, uh, his position on it. But um, as, as we talk about love, we can question people what their understanding of love is. And then the, uh, uh, the challenge for the church is to actually show that. So that the world can say, I thought this was what love is. But actually, 
I was wrong, and that is what love is. And that by doing that, you declare the truth and, and, and what's real. And hopefully then, people are confronted with their sin and God's love, and then um, you know, receive the salvation that Christ has won for everybody. So, Anyways, so words are important. Uh, however, we have to understand how words receive their meaning and how they live, how words live. So, all right, let's pray and just keep rolling. Chapter 10. Our last study will be May 23rd. So, we have two more weeks. All right, let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.